Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I am your host for the show. We're joined by Derek and Alistair. Guys, it's good to be back with you. It's been like two months, I think, since I've talked with you both. Yeah, so. but we, we, we talked a little bit ago. Yeah. yeah, it's been a bit. It has been too long. Yeah. I'm glad that you think that it's been too long. I, I, I just want to say for listeners at home, I had a disturbing encounter with, with one of you during the break um, who told me that in listening to the show, they don't actually discriminate between any of the voices, uh, specifically between the Americans and the Brits. So they can't wow. tell Alistair and Andrew apart. And more disconcertingly, they can't tell me and Derek apart. So <laughs> like this just really troubled me. So for those of you who are listening at home, please, please do try, do try to distinguish between us because I don't want to be to blame for whatever Derek says. Don't, don't, don't harangue the listeners, Matt. That's right. So we are joined today. We're delighted to have Paul Nedeliski with us. Paul is the uh, a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies of Culture uh, and Culture, excuse me. He is also the author of Science and the Good, The Tragic Quest for the Foundations of Morality, co-authored it with James Davidson Hunter. Um, this is a book that Derek actually read. Uh, he doesn't read many books, but he read this one and got oh excited gosh. about it. So, Paul, thanks for Ridiculous. joining the show and more more importantly, inspiring Derek to read something. Oh, my God. I'm glad to be here. And I, I'm very glad to hear that. I, my thought was that this book at least would be something you could keep on your bedside table for those tough nights when sleep just won't come. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that you read it and were able to finish. So, oh, yeah. we're delighted to talk with you about this. Um, for those like me and our listeners at home who haven't read the book, um, tell us a little bit, like, what's it say and why did you write it? Why this topic? Why now? Sure. Uh, you know, James and my motivations will be slightly different, um, but I'll speak for myself. Uh, since I was maybe in college, you know, I've had this experience of going into a bookstore or browsing online, and I, would, I kept seeing these, these books with titles alleging that they were going to do some kind of scientific research that was going to enlighten us about um, good and bad, right and wrong. And, and uh, I knew that was impossible uh, deep down inside. And so I was always, you know, kind of nettled, um, unhappy to see these books dismayed, wondering why, um, wondering what the motivation was. Why did people keep churning out these volumes? What was driving it? Uh, and then um, James and I had the opportunity to write this book uh, starting a few years ago. And that gave us a chance to dive in and explore the recent phenomenon, look at the history, what's the real motivation or motivations behind this, this question and this, this growing literature. And so what we did in the book, uh, we began by looking at the history of the question. And um, it basically starts around the time of the scientific revolution um, and the wars of religion in Europe. And at that point, uh, it's a history that I know all three of you know well, but uh, there was lots of um, disagreement. You know, the, the church no longer was able to play sort of this unifying role in broader society. The Protestant Reformation um, allowed more dissenting voices to enter the fray. Uh, for those of you who can't see, Derek just tried to fist bump me. Um, uh, and uh, let's face it, us, we Christians didn't handle the conflict well initially. And uh, there was lots of bloodshed. Um, it was one of the pressing issues of the day. How can we get past this? People are dying, this constant war. And a number of thinkers thought, well, um, we don't have unity 
about how we should live around matters of faith anymore. So what can play that role now? Well, we've been trying this philosophy thing for 2000 years that, you know, with mixed results, but maybe science, science is, appears to be making leaps and strides. You know, um, we're answering old questions we had about celestial mechanics, for instance, you know, looks like Aristotle was wrong. We got to, you know, update the, the tradition on these matters. Let's, let's look into nature and answer these questions. And so a number of thinkers around this time thought, let's, let's find unity and agreement on moral matters through science. And maybe Hugo Grotius might be the first clear instance. You know, he says things like, uh, the way we can do this, my method will be, I think he says something like, almost after the method of sense experience to resolve these questions. Um, this is turning into a much longer answer than you want, so I'll try to give the, the brief recap and we can dig into the details later. So, so after that time, the next 400 years, this was often the motivation. We have, you know, how do we settle these disagreements? Let's look to science. And, um, you know, it very, after Grotius, very few people thought about it in terms of like the experimental method. You know, that might be the natural thing to think, like what could we do to do a little test and see an answer? No one really ever had an idea of how that could work with morality. So unsurprisingly, that's not the route people took very soon. It's like experiments um, and slapping people, see how that worked for just moral experience. That's right. They had to wait for social psychology to do that okay. uh, in the 20th century. Um, but so what, what quickly happened was, you know, Hobbes and Hume and some other folks said, well, let's, let's look at the part of the moral phenomenon that we can get some traction with empirically, and that's the mind. Um, and so there was this attempt to explain morality by looking at what's happening inside your head. And that continued right down to present. And that uh, very much is what these, what we call the new moral scientists are doing um, today. Now, after we give this kind of brief history, we then, we then turn to the more recent efforts and say, okay, well, what, what is the best science of morality show us? You know, let's try to see, let's give them a fair shake. What, you know, enlighten us. Maybe we're wrong. We haven't read the literature prior to writing the book. Maybe they figured some stuff out. So we have a chapter where we talk about, here's the closest, as far as we can tell, these present day scientific efforts have come. And there's really not a lot to look at there. The best they can do is say, oh, when people think about this sort of moral question, this region of their brain lights up. Or uh, I think maybe the best work is from Jonathan Haidt saying, you know, look, here's kind of five or six basic categories that people universally seem to draw upon when making um, moral judgments. And he's not saying that this can tell us anything about how to live or can settle our disagreements, but it is, you know, illuminating at some level. So finally, after this history and this sort of look at the recent literature, we say, okay, so why, ha you know, it hasn't worked. They can't, you know, science can't answer our moral questions enough to resolve this disagreement. So um, why is that? And we kind of give a diagnosis. Here's, here's the in principle philosophical problem with this whole enterprise, why it can't succeed. And then the very last bit of the book is where we talk about a surprising thing, at least to us, that we uncovered, and that is these recent folks, the new moral scientists, they're really not doing the same project um, for the most part. Uh, they're, not, they're not engaged in answering the same question that, they're, that the longer tradition was. It's, it's changed. They're kind of presenting themselves as saying, let's turn to science to answer these questions. What's really happening is, for metaphysical reasons, they are moral nihilists. They don't think anything really is right or wrong, good or bad. It's all just sort of subjective, um, you know, feelings we have. They're, they're mostly sentimentalists. Evolution causes us to feel this way for various reasons. So um, that deep down, they don't think there is a, an answer to the question. So instead, um, implicitly, the project appears to be 
what science can do is help us get where we want to go, you know, as sort of a technology. Um, we have things we care about regardless of whether they're really good or bad because that's a nonsensical issue, but science maybe can help us achieve our, our social goals. And within the group, their likely audience, they, they, there's more likely to be agreement on what those goals are, so maybe that's why they don't have to talk about them. But that's the much too long no, synopsis. No, that's, that's helpful. So oh, there was really a good. season, Paul, um, where I subjected myself to Sam Harris videos. Oh, yeah. uh, and it was, thank God, a short season of my life. <laughs> um, but, you know, for those who don't know, Sam Harris is one of these new atheists uh, although new atheism is dead from what, what I can tell. Like, it's not a thing anymore. No one cares. Um, I haven't heard anybody talk about it in quite yeah. a while. It's transformed. Yeah, it was a big marketing thing that happened. And hmm. it like all fads, it, it's, it too has passed. Um, but Harris was the most, I don't know, thoughtful of the crew, maybe, I, I think. But he was very much on board with this notion that We've got to look at science, and science is going to deliver us the foundations of morality. He, he, he really did a lot to popularize that outlook. So I have two sure. questions. One, did you have to subject yourself to reading his stuff? And two, um, it, it seems obvious to me that uh, that line of reasoning was running totally against the line of reasoning that's also prevalent in the modern period, that would say there's a, a quote unquote naturalistic fallacy, right? That we can't derive oughts from ises, that, that we can't just describe reality and then that's going to tell us what we ought to do. Um, the, right. the moderns really, the, several of them have this beef with this idea. And it seems like the attempt to like ground moral norms in science just flagrantly violates it. And no one put together sort of how those two worked concurrently. So can you explain to me how those two existed concurrently in modernity? This is what this is where sure. I point out that Matt asks the basic question of the of the thesis of the book to some degree. Like like here's here's an entire section devoted to Matt's question. Did you address this? <laughs> No, it's a great question. Because, it is. No, I, um, I wanted you, know, you to address it. So it's, it's fine, but yeah. it's just great. I know that I think I have a good answer to this one. So I'm happy to hear it. So a couple of things. Um, first, briefly on. So Sam Harris is a little bit different than the other people. Okay. We do, he is one of the main new moral scientists, as we call him. He's the only one that, as far as I can tell, who is actually a moral realist. Huh. He uh, is uh, an outlier in this regard. So, you know, his book, The Moral Landscape, it kind of has, I would say, two big theses. Then the first one is there is an objective right and wrong. And, and on that point, you know, good work, Sam. I don't say that much, but, you know, in this case, yeah. uh, I, I would say that. This, the rest of the book is, and here's how science can tell us what that is. But, and, and so because he's the only moral realist, um, in, in some technical sense, he's the only uh, one of the new moral scientists who faces this problem because huh. everybody else is a nihilist. And so, the way they escape from the no ought from is, is there are no oughts. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, you know, we have to so break one that of, down a little bit more for folks who aren't familiar with the history sure. of the naturalistic. Philosophy. Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah. So they're back. Their basic, the basic metaphysical view, like view of reality that most of these folks have is uh, all there is, is little bitty pieces of matter. Um, or if they're not, you know, atomists, you know, like quantum fields, whatever those are, like basic physical stuff. And, 
anything that's real is built up out of that stuff. And so then they say that rules out a whole bunch of stuff that you might naturally think exists like consciousness, um, right and wrong, your thoughts being about other things. Like how can you get aboutness from mass and spin and charge and all this stuff that doesn't make sense. So, um, the best book to read here, I think to kind of explain the view is, um, Rosenberg's The Atheist Guide to Reality. He kind of really grimly works through the implications. So that's the kind of background view. But, uh, oh, so the point, my point was, how could, you know, the idea of something being more valuable than something else, or the idea that there being rights that govern, like, like legitimately and authoritatively govern the actions of human beings, that just, how do you build those phenomena out of little pieces of matter? It doesn't make any sense. And so the new moral scientists don't think that anything is right and wrong or could be. And so, and so they're not worried about the, the, this, what's called the is-ought problem or um, Hume's, Hume's fallacy because it's, it's all just is-is. And so when, they, when they're talking about what we should do, what they really just mean is, given what we want, what's the best way to get there? And those are, to a large degree, empirical questions. Like, okay, we want to live to be 100, 130. Um, what, <laughs> what do we need to figure out scientifically to make that, and medically to make that happen? And, then science is, is telling them what to do in that sense. It's but kind they of can't a, answer the question, the, why should we, or should we want to live 130 years? Why? What's, what's actually at stake in it, but rather, okay, practically let's, let's get the tech going to, you know, yeah. freeze. That's a, and that's a huge, that's a huge shift that is not, not well articulated by these folks. And I, um, it's always hard to impute intentions when they're not explicitly saying, you know, you can kind of speculate and, but I, I think it's a safe bet that we have some good idea of why they're not saying, look, we're moral nihilists, so we don't really face the is-ought problem. And all we're really talking about is using science to help us pragmatically get to places we've already decided we want to go. You know, that, that, if they say that, then they have to lay down this, like the epistemic authority of science. They, right now they, they can say, look at this scientific approach to right and wrong. And they get this, they can kind of bask in the aura of, of science, which is one of the few remaining kind of broadly publicly acceptable sources of, of, um, of knowledge today. So they want to have that. Um, and so they don't want to say, well, we're not really talking about right and wrong because we don't think that's real. We're just talking about pragmatic success. Uh, and we don't want to, and like, as you pointed out, Derek, they, it seems like they don't want to talk about what they, what the goals ought to be. Right. So they, they're basically assuming the capital of prior use of the language Hey, when I say right and wrong, when I say good and bad, when I say you're mostly most 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 folks are assuming a common sense view of like actually right and wrong, napalming babies is actually morally, you know, repugnant and that sort of thing. And so yeah. they assume that sort of baseline common folk moral realism, and then they use a lot of the same words, uh, but smuggle in uh, this kind of nihilist pragmatic let's do what is useful to us view of what is good uh, is what I'm yeah, hearing. Absolutely. I mean, I think part of what I love about um, working with James and being at the Institute is you have all these social theorists and sociologists who studied these kinds of phenomena. You know, philosophers usually are like, well, if they didn't give it as an explicit argument. I don't, you know, I'm not going to talk about that. Give me the premises and then we'll go. Um, <laughs> but there's this, these weird, you know, in, these weird uh, coincidences that are that can't possibly actually be coincidences. Like, why do all thirty or forty of the new moral scientists have the same view, but 
almost never explicitly owned that they're moral nihilists. That seems like a really interesting thing they could point out. And except for Joshua Green, who was owned up to this in his dissertation in like the early 2000s, and Rosenberg, no one else is, wants to talk about that. The way you describe the genealogy of these positions, you highlight the social and political um, the ferment out of which it arose within the wars of religion. And even within the current context, you talk about the way that people turn to science because it seems to be one of the last remaining bastions of some sort of public reason. Right. Um, how do you relate the problem, not just to a very abstract philosophical concern, but as you seem to, to deeper political, social crises about failure of structures and institutions of meaning making and public reason? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, one of the motivations, as you point out, is still present. So disagreement. Um, we're not killing each other in the same way we, as we were in the West during the wars of religion. But, you know, there's deep polarization and division in society. And I think that these authors can leverage that um, to generate interest in their work. But I, but the practical value is so, I just don't see it. I don't, I don't see anyone saying anyone capable of appealing to the literature today is to, to say, and this, this is how this research is helping us solve this problem. Maybe Heights work to some tiny degree, you know, saying, Hey, conservatives, Hey, uh, you know, progressives, let's think about how, like, what the basic moral categories are that we use and thereby better understand each other. Uh, you know, well, that, that seems useful as like a pragmatics of rhetoric. So like, Hey, I know that liberals tend to, 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 perk up when I use reasoning that appeals to these three or four categories, conservatives this way. That's why we can't talk to each other. And so like, okay, if you're a preacher, like, okay, how do I, how do I work those two or three angles that I'm not usually attuned to? But again, even that already assumes a moral framework of like, it's a good thing to speak to them. And it's a good thing that I'm confusing of. So like, again, it's, it's useful as a, again, a pragmatics of, right. of, of rhetoric, but it doesn't tell me why I actually should be trying to convince liberals of my views. It just assumes I want to. And on the pragmatics aspect of it, there's a very great piece in um, First Things by Helen Andrews called Bloodless Moralism. It was written a few years back. And she just describes the way that even conservative thinkers routinely appeal to statistics, to the social sciences, to back up positions that they arrive at on very different bases. But for rhetorical purposes, that is the basis in which, oh, that's the framework within which we can express things within the public square. Yeah. I need to look that piece up, Alistair. It's, it's, that's a fascinating thing to me. I um, weirdly wound up at this uh, education conference a few weeks ago, and it was a room, um, most of the people who work in kind of the, the academic side of education, education theory, school choice, this kind of stuff. And it was a pretty religious and conservative crowd, not totally, but it, it was, there were strong representations of those elements in the room. And I was shocked, not having any prior familiarity with the, these discussions, at how much the debate was quantitative and saying, we're, you know, the, the appeal we're making is to the results of this study. And it's, you know, sort of narrowly focused on material outcomes. And, and almost nobody in the room um, thought those were the most important things. But because of the situation we find ourselves in, I take it, they resort to those kinds of appeals, trying to find some you know, broad basis for appeal across these ideological divisions. But the unintended upshot, I think, I think in this case is 
they wind up not talking about those things which are most important. Um, things that matter to human beings, significant symbolic representation, it just winds up being, um, yeah, kind of narrow material interests because that's more empirically tractable, um, just kind of fleshing out your point. One more thing I wanted to say about your original question, Alistair, which is a great one, and I, more and more, James and I keep talking about this. We, did, we didn't really delve into this very deeply in the book, but it, it's becoming increasingly clear to us that this kind of um, science as, as, as a way of looking at the best means to achieve an end, an end that we don't want to talk about, this is part and parcel of a technocratic approach to public life and, and policy. Um, and so we think there's sort of a, I think the sociological term is an elective affinity between these, these schools of thought. Um, you have a, a group of elites who um, know better and they can use quantitative methods to tell us what the right answer is. And they're not having debates about the ultimate value issues uh, because they can just appeal to this study or that study uh, or this measure or that measure and have kind of quantitative, uh, you know, putatively empirical uh, evidence to support their view. So I, I think there's got to be some kind of, to use a word I hate, synergy there, but that needs further exploration. Well, and I, I appreciated that, that you touched on on some of the way the, you know, I'm not some sort of class analysis, but class structure plays into the way these things, uh, these studies arise. And the fact that somebody will point to some study performed on 40 undergrads at an Ivy League uh, for like, oh, this is what makes, this is what makes for happiness. Yeah, among like a very tiny uh, subset of college kids coming from a very specific background uh, in a very elite setting. And we're going to then publish some big study and have probably some news report uh, on a morning show about how well studies show that this amount of coffee and this sort of whatever just contributes to general happiness instead of like, okay, not, not a virtuous life, not a whatever. This is a good way it. to get a buzz in the morning uh, and or, or like, hey, you know, this much of exercise, this much reading, this much whatever. So so the way that this evolutionary psychology, this, this uh, science of right and wrong uh, – plays right into the hands of also like our American uh, pastime of of um, selling rich people uh, uh, lifestyle hmm. choices uh, is is a funny was it just it, it was illuminating relatedly though or maybe unrelatedly um, the way this is being used in the public is interesting to me in that you've got um, you've got a couple of impulses there. And then on the one hand, it seems like the, the rise of kind of like the evolutionary psychology and the evolutionary science uh, 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 discussions and their um, input into social, social discussions about like gender or uh, masculinity or any of those kinds of things. On the one hand, it often assumes this really, the, you know, the kind of naturalistic uh, framework uh, for um for, for constructing these studies and ethics at the same time in a lot of ways it starts becoming another form of natural theology uh ethics in the way that the way that some of this can be possibly used um as like an an alternate or a confirmation of uh premises that you might arrive at by my theological ethics or or naturalistic or like a natural theological ethic and that 
question is one that um, this is not my area, but it's interesting. I'd love to hear you all talk about it just because I'm, I'm on a campus where, you know, the sciences, UCI, like bio, all that, the hard science is a big deal. And the temptation to use, uh, to appeal to scientific studies uh, to confirm biblical or, you know, conclusions I've come to for biblical and theological reasons, like the proper role of correlating some of this new science uh, and, and scientific ethics with biblical and theological ethics, it raises the meta-ethical question. It raises the science of right and wrong, re relating it to like God's commands and all that sort of thing. So I actually, this is this is me pitching a big, long, why don't y'all talk about this subject? Because I'm not a theological ethicist, but I'm interested in all of this and how it relates to the way we talk to folks about um, correlating kind of almost the apologetic dimension uh, uh, of, of, of these things. So Paul, Can I Alistair, clarify a question real quick? Um, do you mean like, um, so in this, in this debate from, from a big part of this debate that we talked about in the book is, uh, evolutionary psychology. And mm -hmm. so evolutionary psychology, you know, tries to give, um, an empirically consistent, uh, account of where our human impulses and mental faculties came from and what, and why they emerged it. I mean, and so the, what they wind up you know, whether they own up to it or not, what they're really doing is giving an anthropology, um, yeah. and, you know, giving us an answer to some anthropological, anthropological questions that previously we might have got from, from theology. Is this the kind of question or is it a little bit different? To some degree. Yeah. 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 And so like, Hey, we've got all these studies saying that, um, you know, uh, men and women are super different. Their brains work differently. The, the violence levels with men are higher, yada, yada. And, you know, part of me looks at that and it says, well, I, you know, Assuming a theological anthropology of creation with men and women distinctions, sorts, all that sort of thing, um, that intuitively kind of makes sense. And my temptation is to correlate that with a oh. theological position of like, look, this is natural reason beginning to confirm what I have, uh, you know, what I see as theological theological reason giving me like my my basic conclusion. And so, I'm just kind of curious what you think of 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 those those uh those attempts and how that relates to the meta ethic question and then given that i'm not sure what you say is going to be exactly what alistair and matt will think about it i want to watch the fight so that's what i'm that's what i'm doing so <laughs> that's that's uh, so, paul you weigh in first you're the guest yeah I'll, i have some thoughts but um feel free to all of you to tweak me in the right direction based on where you want this conversation to go so one thing i I think this is re relevant. I've been thinking about lately is I think there's a, a huge theoretical disconnect between this, the, the picture and the story of evolutionary, that evolutionary psychology is providing and traditional theological accounts. Um, but I think there's also a huge, and, and so I, I'm very, I'm very skeptical about attempts to merge, to merge these approaches. I mean, the account given by evolutionary psychology has to be in every case for any human faculty, you know, mental faculty or impulse is that either that it had adaptive reasons for, for being there. Um, you know, why do we care about our kinsmen? Because small groups where people cared about each other in the hunter gatherer days outcompeted those that didn't, you know, it, and so, um, you know, why, why do you care about your kids? Well, because your genes, you know, the genes of the, of the organisms that did that survived and reproduced and 
the, the genes of the organisms that didn't do that died out. And so, uh, you know, and what inevitably I think happens is, is that it drains away um, what really appears to be the substance of the, of this phenomenon. Like, you know, you know, you hold your baby or your kid or a loved one. And you're like, I, I love you because of, you know, oxytocin or whatever, vasopressin <laughs> in, my, in my brain. Um, and because if, if my ancestors had not, you know, we would have died out. <clears throat> it, it's, it's just, it's a total disconnect. It's, um, it make, it makes, it makes the world of experience an illusion in, in these regards. So, I, but I don't think it's just a problem for people who like theology, for religious people. I think, I'm, you know, I'm no prophet, but one a, re, a place where I, th- I think there's going to be increased discussion and discontent is um, this, this conflict is there for even those who don't have some alternative story they can appeal to to account for why humans are the way they are. So I think a lot of people read books from the naturalists, <coughs> excuse me, and they don't like the the disenchanting kind of illusion making um, upshot of this view, but they just don't know what the alternative might be. And so, uh, and kind of related to that, um, you know, I think about a book like Nagel's Mind and Cosmos. Thomas Nagel uh, um, you know, created a big stir, like kind of dust up in philosophy a few years ago, where he said, "Look, humans are significant and amazing. Um, consciousness is astounding." We didn't need to have consciousness. We didn't need to have moral sensibilities to survive. Look at the cockroach. They're doing better than we are, in, you know, at least in survival terms. So how could this possibly happen through an unguided naturalistic process? It's, it's fantastical. Um, and the choir and people, playing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And everybody assumed he was, he was, it was a veiled argument for, for theism, even though he was real explicit in saying, like, I find it impossible to believe there's a God, so it must be some third option. So I'll wind up this very long meander by just saying, I don't see good ways of meshing traditional theological approaches with sort of the evolutionary psychological account or the, many, of the, many of the explanations that come from a naturalistic world picture. But I think a lot of people are feeling a need for some other way to explain these aspects of experience that um, don't seem like illusions. Uh, they need some way to explain the wonder and significance of human beings that the naturalistic account can't explain. They have to say it's an accident or that it, the wonder and significance is an illusion. So I would think we're going to see some attempts to kind of articulate a third a third rail here. I think one aspect of the picture that I found helpful to reflect upon is that nature has significance for evolutionary, evolutionary um, psychologists and other theorists and also for Christians, for very different reasons. Um, for evolutionists, there is that sense that nature testifies to what has been successful in terms of its selection mechanisms. Whereas for Christians, nature is significant because it is created by God as good. And so any science that is attentive to the natural order in some respect does come with a degree of significance to us, even if we disagree with its explanations of causation, of origin, things like that. And there, I think, when we see um, the implications of um, a more evolutionary account of psychology, of sociology, etc., within the current context, we see a lot of resistance to that. It's increasingly being seen as a right-wing position. Sam Harris is not 
someone who's popular in the way that he was 10, 15 years ago. Increasingly, there is resistance caused from people, for instance, who support a more transgender-affirming account of male and female, for instance. They would be very strongly resistant to an account of evolutionary psychology that takes male and female seriously. And Christians can see that fight and recognize we're not on either side, but there is something about the evolutionary psychologists that we do resonate with. They do at least take the natural order hmm. seriously on some level, recognizing that even if they're going to reduce this to just something that's arisen from natural forces and there is no there's no fundamentally no ought or should or moral realism, there's still something there. And Christians can say, well, that's not where we derive our should or our ought from nature itself, but we at least recognize there's an echo or at least some way in which the moral life resonates with or goes with the grain of reality. And one question on this that I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on are the ways in which you mentioned Nagel, I think also of someone like Jordan Peterson, who's debated with Harris on a number of occasions. There seems to be an attempt on the part of some to move towards a post-materialistic um, metaphysics that is nonetheless not Christian. Um, and I wonder where you're seeing that taking place. Are you seeing it taking place? And how does that fit in with your thesis? Hmm. Yeah, this is an interesting subject. It's also a, it's also a, it's a dicey subject in the academy. So um, my sense is that the, the, a lot of the interest in a post-materialist post-materialist conception, at any explicit level, is outside of the academy. That's that's my kind of maybe too too crude assessment. Um, Jordan Peterson is a good case. He's got generated a ton of traction and interest. Um, he's very scientific. Um, or likes to present himself as such, but he, but it's, he's not, if he, I don't think he's really a naturalist, you know, he's very open to the, the realm of the human spirit. And that's a big part of his program. And, and that's why I think he part of why he resonates with so many people. Um, I mean, you also, you also see this, the phenomenon of the book, um, Bronze Age Mindset. I mean, here's, here's a book that some anonymous person published, uh, self-published, so it's anonymous and it's self-published. Those are not typically recipes for success in the publishing world. And yet somehow the book became a bestseller. Um, like that the says shack. that this, the, oh, did Shaq do that? Like something like that. Sorry, I just had oh. to throw in that little bit of trivia. Keep going. Yeah, I mean, um, so I mean, and so the, the first half of that, I mean, the book winds up saying some terrible things. But the first half of that book is basically an extended um, criticism of kind of a disenchanted modern perspective on reality. And it's, you know, it's, again, I don't endorse where this book goes, but the sort of critique aspect of it is pretty well done. It's, um, you know, very strange book, but some of his, he's very sensitive to what it's like to live in the modern Western world. Um, and he can point out some of these felt problems with the naturalistic perspective. And so again, definitely not in the academy, but it's getting a lot of traction outside of the academy. There's a lot of people are reading this book. Um, so yeah, I think I, that's part of why I think there is an interest in sort of a third way. Um, people don't want to, again, such bald assertions. People feel like they know what Christianity or Islam are about. 
They don't like what naturalism is telling them. But what, what does that leave you? I, it's, I mean, is, uh, is postmodern nihilistic you know, power games, that's not really a view. That's just sort of a way of operating once you've given up on metaphysics. It's just not clear that there is any kind of coherent third op, you know, option out there. And I see people like Nagel, Peterson, whoever wrote Bronze Age Mindset, they're, they're groping towards something, something new. But nothing, nothing I think is really congealed yet from my perspective. So I, I, th I think it's an interesting question and an open one. Yeah. What's left, I mean, what you become is an Instagram Wiccan. That's, that's, <laughs> you know. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, but that, that whole thing that the, this is where, this is where you get the temptation to be um, spiritual, not religious and really into the 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 I effing love science Facebook page at the same time because oh, we're gonna have science, or at least whatever Wikipedia tells me of it. Plus the fact that I really you know know that there's a buzz out there. Actually, this reminds me of um, uh, Rob Bell's book, "What We Talk About When We Talk About God." Yeah, I'm bringing him back, huh. Mike. That, I have uh, not heard of this book. I, the answer is not God. Yeah, the what we talk about when we talk about God. Um, it was the one that got him connected with Oprah. Oh my gosh. Him, big huh. deal. It was after Love Wins. Anyways, the point is, the one chapter that I thought was actually well done in that in that book was the one he just called Hum. And he basically starts going after the, the, the hum that people know is like out there in the universe beyond just the base material order. And it was totally primed for... Uh, semi-pantheistic like uh, you know boomer Oprah viewers and that kind of thing just but recognizing like there's more than just the base material order uh, there's something yeah. spiritual out there and um, and people can't suppress that sense you know the the the, the divine sense the, the the natural knowledge of God and so we're gonna come up with something like this if we can something real enough that we can feel spiritual and vague enough that it doesn't actually like issue commands or something uh, you know intrusive like that and right that is my hunch with some of this is folks are folks are picking up on the spiritual vacuousness of just like a, a pure moral vacuum uh, you know the the the, the, the just bl bloodlessness, not even not even moralism, just bloodless nihilism. But they need something more to have some sort of framework of meaning, or at least the 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 patina of meaning on whatever they already want to do. Um, and so yeah, huh. that that to me is part of what's going on, or it seems to be what's going on with some of these phenomena that you can't happen in the academy, but out and around it people still people still feel it i don't know well i think you know, we're going to get there i mean the academy uh, we the academy is going to respond eventually um uh, i'm i'm very curious about what form it'll take and maybe it won't be one thing um but i think you're right you know as soon as you a lot of people have this you know spiritual but not religious i love science but you're right like as soon as you want to if you're a curious person and you want to know about why humans are the way we are uh for instance you're going to have to go deeper. You're going to have to have more specifics. Um, what accounts for the, the, I think for a lot, a lot of people still have a residual sense that humans are of equal value and that we're more valuable than other organisms. How do you account for that? Um, the spiritual but not religious, just there's no answer. And so I think yeah, that's I'm part of why people are turning to like, yeah, these other. 
approach. Well, I was talking to a kid last week. He, he, um, I mean, he's raised Roman Catholic, uh, knows there's something more, but he just kept talking about the universe. Like, I know the universe has a purpose. I was like, okay, let's say, just, is the universe a person? Is it an intention? Does it have, but like that, but that kind of smart kid, like really smart, driven, thoughtful, and, but, you know, that kind of vagary uh, of, of spirituality that is there. Uh, that it doesn't intrude too much. It just gives enough meaning to keep the to keep the week rolling for him, but not enough huh. to intrude. And trying to push him on, okay, but do you have an ultimate good you're in and you know aimed at an ultimate telos to your life, ultimate meaning, and how does that relate? And trying to, we had the same thing with another with another student on campus. He was. Uh, we're talking out on, on our main thoroughfare ring road. And this kid was a, was a science kid. He was talking about the way that, um, well, no, I'm, I kind of learned how to live on what's actually beneficial to others and beneficial to myself. And, and, but he had it worked out. It was funny. He hadn't even read the moral, the new moral scientists, but he was so in on some of these scientific discussions that he was trying to correlate his sense of the meaningfulness of self-sacrificial love to the way that furthers the organism and furthers the you know, meaning of life. And, and it was trying to get him to see some of the questions within the, that, that you, you're addressing. How do you get from the is to the ought? How is it, why does it matter if what is there is just matter and matter just is there for no reason? Um, yeah. So, all that to say, this is my kind of way of saying the the the, ans the 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 discussions in this book are of not just theoretical and sociopolitical importance. I mean, I, I actually think it's a really good book for helping folks navigate these discussions at a pastoral and practical and apologetic, in not in the worst sense, uh, view uh, value or, or uh, issues. Sorry, I'm. Really. But that it it cuts to the heart of what a lot of people don't want to face in, in, in some of these discussions. That's good to hear. Thank you. Maybe following on a bit from that, um, I'll be interested to hear more of your thoughts on the type of science that people are returning to or turning to for these questions. It doesn't seem to have the sort of clarity and force and universality of the sort of thing that we'd see in Newton's third law or in Einstein's equations. Very often it seems to have the sort of science that we turn to to determine how much meat or dairy we should have in our diet or how many... Um, steps we should be walking each day. They're the sort of things here and there that help us to optimize our lifestyle, but don't necessarily present us with forceful things that might present us with obligations or might place further limits upon us, which fits in in some ways with what Derek was talking about, about that particular student's discussion of um, morality and how the science fit in with that. No, I completely agree. I think about a really great instance of what you're talking about is the positive psychology movement. Um, so, you know, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're trying to sort of fine tune and, and, and tweak. I mean, I guess you could say it's positive psychology is the academic wing of the self-help self -help movement that Derek referenced earlier, you know. And right now, uh, recently, their, their vanguard has been grit. Um, you know, the idea that we, through our empirical studies and our social psychological studies, have discovered 
what brings human flourishing and it's sort of perseverance. It's the ability to chart a course of action and then stick with it despite hardship and adversity. Um, but you know, it, it's very, it's very thin. Um, yeah. It's, it, there's a huge industry out there surrounded, surrounding this project. There are Ted talks about it and lots of books, Angela Duckworth, um, uh, Selig, you know, Martin Seligman and this guy cheeks at me high for his first name. You know, they're writing these books about it. And, but it all seems to face this like really devastating simple question which, or observation, which is, but yeah, I mean, the best drug dealers have a lot of grit too. Uh, so I mean, are they flourishing? Is that, and if that is flourishing, should we be aiming for flourishing? You know, that is, there, there are big problems with this sort of thin kind of life optimizing approach where we can use science to learn that, yeah, again, grit helps you get where you're going, but it doesn't tell you whether where you're going is good or not, or whether you should be going there. I, that's just kind of one little illustration. I, well, maybe it serves managerialist purposes increasingly. Oh, that's a great observation. Yeah. Like, um, look, your project's late. I mean, you, you know, here's a book on grit. <laughs> um, so the, the thing that, you know, it occurred to me while I was thinking about all this is the way that um, oftentimes with these scientific studies, they'll point to nature well, but what they often can't handle is um, the way fallen nature needs grace to work. Right. So it'll, it'll point to our instinct and need for justice. It'll point for the, for equitable, um, uh, dispersals of socioeconomic resources. It'll point to a lot of the needs of nature. And oftentimes, uh, when it comes to the way we handle its breakdown, um, and how to actually put things back together, um, that is where it seems that it has to kind of fall dumb fall silent before it. And that's, that's not something I've seen it speak to well is, is actually just the dynamics of, of, of grace. And I mean, I don't know if that's just a sermon point I made, but with, with you, I know with, with you, with your, but with your, with your studies, what you've seen in these, in these conversations, um, I mean, is that, is that tracking? Have I just not read enough or, or, or is that like an, uh, a glaring gap you've seen as well? Oh, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, I don't think anyone's, I kind of hope no one's looking at the science of grace. I don't know. It just, it feels like a terrible <laughs> way to approach the, the subject. I, I've not seen anyone studying that. Um, there's an interesting project to, where people, maybe the closest you could come to that in sort of the broader discussion, I'm, I'm less acquainted with the, the sort of theological or, or pastoral literature, but you could kind of see this coming up in discussions about forgiveness, um, yeah. which sometimes percolate up, you know, like, should we forgive um, this people group for what they've done to that, that people group, you know, or is that counterproductive? And I could, I could imagine there probably are studies about, you know, trying to delve into the science of, um, kind of broad demographic reconciliation, but I, I've not, I've not read those, but in terms of grace itself, I've, n I've not seen anything like that. Uh, yeah. That's a, that's a fine point to wrap up on, on the insufficiency of science to answer uh, life's deepest and most important questions and to satisfy our most fundamental needs. Um, Paul, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a terrific conversation. Thanks for having me. It's been great. The uh, The book, for those of you who uh, have listened to this, uh, is Science and the Good, The Tragic Quest for the Foundations of Morality. 
Uh, we strongly recommend it to you. We'd like to congratulate you, our listeners, on your grit uh, that you've demonstrated in listening to this <laughs> podcast. Um, we're so grateful. This is going to go down in my memory as the podcast episode where both Rob Bell and Bronze Age Age Mindset made an appearance. So congratulations, <laughs> oh, man. dear audience, on making it through. Um, all clicks are All good clicks. clicks, are right? good clicks. That's right. Uh, we are so grateful oh, wow. for your time, for your attention, and for your support. If you'd like to join the merry band of Patreon supporters who keep us going financially, uh, the link to do so is in the show notes at Mirror Orthodoxy. Uh, we'll have other shows coming this spring. We have a great lineup of guests coming this spring. Molly Worthen is scheduled. I don't even remember. We're going to do a show on integralism. Uh, it's sort of Ooh. the Catholic political theology that's going to be a ton of fun. Um, it's going to be a great spring. We're very excited about it. So uh, thanks for your support. Until next time, this has been Mere Fidelity. Mere Fidelity.